Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode whatever of Politics of Tyranny, the Politics of Tyranny. We're happy to be here. I'm Mark Barnes. Very little credentials. This is Andrew, Andrew Jones, a whole bunch of credentials. Um, and we're here to talk about tyranny, to investigate it, because, well, you know, it's worth just talking about the way we live today, and we live under a tyranny. No doubt about it. Totally true. Yeah. I saw a billboard the other day, and it just said, good finds a way. Right. Didn't say anything else. What insane world do people spend money to tell other people that good finds a way? Right, right. That's what it means to live under a tyranny because I think we get confused sometimes. Well, it's, it must just be that like bad things happen to us and we have to do what big, strong people want. What about want. that weird billboard that's around town that's like the healing power of human kindness? That's tyranny, man. That one is weird. That is creepy and weird, yeah. And what we because <laughs> what we talked about last time is what it's doing is it's basically just saying like the world comes from above, from power that can afford these things, yeah, and you receive it, right? And actually, the content doesn't matter because you're not being treated as a person who can actually converse with these billboards. You're just a receptacle, right? People love that, man. People love being receptacles for time. For it's easy. <laughs> it's an easier life. <laughs> I, I think there's a there's a rebellion in sort of being stirred up in us in doing these podcasts. What I'd like to do at some point is a good episode on rebellion. Sure, because I think that's you want to be on that side. Yeah, the yeah. rebel alliance. Yeah, you don't want to be on the Death Star. Yeah, it's funny because the only way tyrants can operate within our particular regime is to constantly tell stories like Star Wars. Right, right, and then we just are somehow supposed to presume that somehow. The real rebels are, in fact, the ones in power now. You know, you know how funny that is. I mean, I, I, I listen to NPR and stuff frequently. Oh, I love NPR. And the, these people who couldn't possibly be more establishment, like yeah. couldn't possibly Perfect. be more square. They hit every... Like just the lamest squares possible. <laughs> think that they're rebels. Oh, yeah. They think that they're like hippies, like revolutionaries or oh, something. It's like, no, guys, you are... You, it couldn't be more lame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, like and, that's, and that's why resistance to the Trump presidency is required. Sponsored by automated, <laughs> automated 401ks for all of your family members. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, but, that, but that's just what tyranny is. I mean, we've discussed this at the beginning that it has to um, mask itself. Right. It can't even be present to itself because it's repulsive to rule for private gain or to be someone's lackey. Right. We hate that. Right. Um, so when we're doing it, we tell lies to ourselves, to our children. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I, I think rebellion is the proper attitude of the Christian um, within a tyranny. And I think that this gets, this idea gets a bad rap because, you know, rebellion is sort of, well, you know, messy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it has, and it's been totally co-opted. So like rebellion just means something like, like not caring what your dad says. Like it has yeah, a sort, some of sort of infantile. Some sort of adolescent yeah, foolishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But I think about this in relation to the Bible, especially because, you know, one of the things that our country has experienced a particular tyranny in our country was actual slavery. Mm -hmm. And, one of the things that incited rebellion in actual slaves here in the U.S. of A. Um, was the Bible. Right. Reading of the Exodus story um, was profoundly helpful to inciting rebellion. And 
<laughs> it's funny because slave owners then had a certain theology where they promised, you know, it's not about actual slavery. It's not about actual tyranny. Right. It's a sort of spiritual message of deliverance, da-da-da. Don't right. actually take off your chains. Don't actually fight against tyranny. Uh, the Bible is edifying, right? Yeah. In fact, the Bible tells you to accept your slavery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is, this, is, this is not a good read. This is not a good read of the Bible. <laughs> In fact, it's not a read of the Bible at all. Yeah. I don't know what book they're reading, but I'm pretty sure it's not the Bible. I think what's <laughs> when I when I read the Bible, I, I'm struck by how. I mean, it sounds so silly to say, "Well, the Bible is very prescient here." It's very. It's like, well, yeah, it's well, the of course word it of God, is. Right? <laughs> but you know, I'm 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 still struck by how it is a book about tyranny mm-hmm. and about resistance to it, because when you have well, I'll ask you a question. Who's the first tyrant? The first tyrant? Yeah. Well, Adam. Well, Eve. okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bad question. The first. Uh, then Cain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's sin. There's so on and so forth. Okay. All right. Bad question. <laughs> the first king ah, over the people. We're talking about Babel. We're talking about Babel. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Jews have a tradition um, that Nimrod. Mm-hmm. was the first one to, to wield what we would now pretty simply call tyrannical power, right. uh, lording it over others in a kind of obvious political manner. Um, and I love the story of Babel because it is a literalization of what we're talking about here, right? So we've said a few things. Like one, one thing that we said is that tyranny involves the use of propaganda, Mm-hmm. And propaganda is the deliver, delivery of a man-made world. Right, so from above. It, yeah, exactly. What Babel is, is an actual man-made world. I right. Mean, it's a big tower. And we've also talked about how tyranny, when you have uh, rule for private gain, tends towards the homogenization of culture. Right. Why? Well, it's because difference, like having diversity, um, is not helpful when you want to rule for private game because it means that people are pursuing ends that aren't your own. Yeah, and you, and it's difficult to to give them instruction. Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right, because you have to speak into the particularity into the of their particularity lives of who they are. So you need you need a homogenized population at least in the to the extent that you're trying to get them to do something like in that realm. Right. And so what we spoke of is how all <clears throat> tyranny needs bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which is an ordering of society. Um, so that the will of the tyrant can be also the will of, you know, those under him, but not yeah. directly, but not indirectly. Yeah, directly, indirectly. Right. So their, their particular wills become, or their particular ends become, um, inconsequential, exactly. right? Because that, that just becomes their motivation for serving the ends of the tyrant. Yep. And, in, and right. in, in Babel, this is literalized in that there is, there is one language. Right. So people are quite literally able to receive one law and have it be identically repeated all the way down. There's no need to speak into it's a not particular... Even one it's one language and few words. And few words, that's right. So there's very little diversity. It's not like different populations have different dialects or different meanings or different... I mean, I think that the, the takeaway from that is that this is a univocal, direct yeah. communication system. Yeah, commands are given. And, then... and they're understood exactly as they're given. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the Jews... And I'm thinking about the Midrash tradition, the rabbis, 
when they looked at this story, what they said is the sin of Babel was in fact a sin against the command to be fruitful and multiply. Interesting. So it wasn't just sometimes we get the idea of Babel just being sort of prideful. Like they wanted to go really high. Yeah, make and, a name for themselves. Yeah, yeah. But but what the what the rabbis say is that the the act of staying still and in one place building. and building up instead uh, of building out was effectively the sin. Got it. Because when you're fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, you are by nature resisting tyranny. Indeed. What I, what I, I mean it. by this is just pretty simple. Like if I want to rule over a people, it gets harder and harder to the degree that they diversify and move out both geographically but also spiritually because, you know, this family separated enough from some kind of central control develops its own language, its own customs, its own mores, its own way of doing things. Its own, its own sort of material architecture, like like the world it builds, the way in which it acts upon the world, the yeah. way in which, right, yeah. it becomes... And by necessity, they become sufficient unto themselves so, to yeah, some degree. Right. So they just simply don't need you as much. Right. So any tyrant has to... We say that this is sort of an architectural... Well, it's an, it's an archetype. Because mm -hmm. any tyrant has to change a society. If he's going to effectively be a tyrant, he has to change society from one that is fruitful and multiplies, right, and thus always escapes its, his control by nature, mm -hmm. into one that builds up. You think about the image of a tower. Well, a tower is always controlled by man because it, it, there's only one access point. It's the bottom, mm -hmm. right? So everyone within that tower can be controlled. But for the Jews, the limitation of... Um, Babel here was it was a violent limitation. You weren't allowed to leave Babel. So when you say the Jews, you mean where where is this interpretation coming from? So Babel? I'm thinking a, it's in um, it's in uh, I'm going to say this wrong the uh, Bereshit Rabbah. But it's a it's a medieval. Well, that one is no, that one is older than that. But there's a really good medieval text, the Sefer Yasher, which is uh, the story of Abraham. Okay. Well, it's really a story of, it goes through multiple parts of Genesis. But yeah, it's a medieval text um, that's just giving detail to um, And a Genesis. lot of these medieval Jewish texts are, of course, based upon more ancient tradition. Oh, totally. Like they're just bringing forward and writing down what mm -hmm. they have been told. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it starts with oral tradition. And right. It goes from there. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, and, and what this text talks about <clears throat> is that... Um, it's describing a tyranny, almost a perfect tyranny. Because what Nimrod does is the way he organizes the world into a whole is he takes captives from different peoples, he takes their children, and he keeps their children in prison. So then he fundamentally now has introduced anxiety into all of the families of the earth. I should say so. They have their kids. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what I mean when I say it's a literalization. It's right, like, right. It's it's like, like we're talking about these subtle right. mechanisms, but I'm telling you a story that's just like, okay, here's how it Here's how it is. is. Yeah, right. Okay. So he takes their children, um, and then he threatens the children in order to motivate the parents. Okay. And it works brilliantly. So he organizes the whole world, uh, well, that part anyways, the plains of Shinar, into, um, into a hole because everyone's scared. Okay. And this is precisely what we said about the tyrant, right? Right. Cruelty, the infliction of pain, is necessary to motivate people that would otherwise be at peace. That's right. Those families without the kids taken aren't motivatable uh, for the ends that the tyrant is pursuing. They might be motivatable for the common good, mm -hmm. but then you're not a tyrant anymore. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you see the problem. Yep. So anyways, he takes their kids, he orders everyone to a society, he creates one rule, one law, and they're building one tower 
two things are really important. He says that anyone who didn't conform to the thought and language of Babel was punished by being burned alive in a furnace. And that furnace was the same furnace that produced the bricks to build it, that Babel was built. And there's this, so you wow, have, you have wow. this description, right, of how the fear is actually productive of the social order. And the social order is literalized. It's the building right. that they're working on, which when we talk, we're talking about the whole system. And then it's directly idolatrous. I mean, it, it is to be God. It is to, it is, to reach God, it is reach to, the heavens. Yeah, and, and what, what the, this text and, and much older texts say um, is that there was an idol on the top, uh-huh. and the idol had a, a, a sword, a sword, maybe a knife, raised against God. Okay. And, and pretty much all of the rabbis, when they heard the, uh, that line you said, make a name for ourselves, right. the, that was a reference to idolatry, to make a god for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, just to be a god. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but there's a story within this that I, that I really like that gets to what we want to focus in on today. Um, well, first I'll just say, the Bible is a story about tyranny. So it begins, I mean, this is right at the beginning. It describes the most archetypical, perfect tyranny. A king, a man-made world, a society you can't live, a regime of propaganda, Mm -hmm. right? A homogenization of culture. And then it adds this. When they're building the tower, there's a story that's told that the sin that kind of cried out to heaven and had God come down um, to, to, to be over against Babel was that when people would fall off of the tower, no one would weep. But when people, when a brick would fall that they were using, everyone would weep because oh, it meant they had to go they had down. To go down yeah. Okay, so what does that mean? I mean, obviously that sounds like bad people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, all, is that is all that's being said here? Is it just like, oh, Babel's full of bad people? Well, yeah, but the way they're being bad is by a reduction, right, of the particular person um, that is reduced, and what's elevated is the society itself, or, mm-hmm. or rather, the 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 man-made world itself. Right. So the person becomes nothing other than an individual. Right. Um, as that individual is an is a component of this man-made entity. Exactly. Like they literally become like the bricks. That's the point right. of the story. Yeah, they're less important than the bricks. Right. Because they're more the more easily replaced. Right. 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 I mean, they're just less value. So that is the world um, that tyranny ultimately builds. Yeah, that's what they're after. Now, what happens in the story is really fascinating because God comes down, he looks at this sinful attempt at self-sufficiency, and he punishes Babel, but he, he punishes it precisely by achieving, through the punishment, what was supposed to be achieved by being fruitful and multiplying. Right, so if the sin was to stay in one place, <coughs> to not leave. Oh, and by the way, we should consider that obviously there's population control it within written into Babel, right? Because right. there's there's actual sacrifice of human beings happening regularly to keep the furnace burning. So you're actually limiting population um, in order to have a mass that can be coherently governed and kept under one language. You know, you, so that's something we should probably talk about too. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, human <laughs> sacrifice is a whole other issue. <coughs> Yeah. It, it, it's not it's not only population control, but it's also about the creation of that kind of um, total anxiety. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Man, that's a whole other bit. That's a whole other thing. But let's. So we, so <laughs> so God 
spreads people out by achieving the kind of diversity that would have been achieved by us living out our normal sexual Got difference, it. its movement into across the lands and our separation from each other, right? So he disperses the people he into the disperses nations. the people by way of dispersing their languages. Right. So he creates the difference of culture in them. He creates the the the, the difference of worlds right. like that. So right. now the story the story from the Midrash goes that you know one person would say hand me a brick and the other person would hand him the wrong thing and they would fight. And then right. because they fought, they would separate because no one could understand each other anymore. But what? So, so if you when you read it at first, you're this whole like okay, he changes their languages. You're just like okay, I see how that would be confusing on a on a job site. Um, but that that's not the point, right? The, the the point is that what you're creating is what was supposed to happen. Like man, mankind is not supposed to be able to be governed in this univocal manner where where no one needs to bow to the particularities and differences of right. the other, where there's no need for humility because one command can be given, build the tower, and it can be obeyed in a univocal, unilateral, homogenous manner. Although it is, it is it, like, like often when God acts in salvation history, it, 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 it works towards similar ends but in a remedial way, Sure, right? Because the nations are dispersed with languages that they can't communicate with each other, right? Or they're, or they're, I mean, that's the impression you get, isn't it? Yes, these, totally. are, these are basically sealed off from each mm -hmm. other. And I think that the organic or the natural dispersion of the human race would have been different than that. Oh, yeah. Like because we would have become very uh, heterogeneous and, and, and diverse, but in a way in which the bordering, the borderlands yeah. would have been places of mediation and communication. And we, because right. we all would have been speaking versions of the truth. Right. Translation would have been possible. Right. And this is actually a big part of the story too. The Abraham, not Abraham yet, Abram is a citizen of Babel, but he is speaking the original language of Adam, Hebrew, which is a language of great power. So there is this through line where, where God calls Abram out of Babel, mm -hmm. even as he disperses the nations, but there's something different happening in both cases. Because when you look at the nations, now they're at war. Right. So they're defined by conflict. Right. And this is sort of like a prophylactic effort on the part of God in the sense of he's not, he's not like just creating people that are suddenly good. Okay. You did it wrong, but I'm just going to make that's you right. fruitful that's what and multiply. It's like remedial, almost, yeah, totally, almost, almost punitive. Totally remedial. Because now what you have is you have... And this is good of him, right? Because he doesn't just get rid of our freedom. He doesn't just take away or like, our habits. Like yeah. we deserve it. Yeah, like we... <laughs> but what he does is he creates the conditions whereby now tyrants are in competition with each other. So what's happening is not that... that well, what's happening is there's a lot of people trying to build babbles. Right. <clears throat> but that's a conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Because not everyone can be the whole world. <laughs> Right. So if one if one king gets too strong, the neighboring four or five team up and, and yeah, put him back in his place. It's exactly what you see as the Bible goes and, forward. And that's history, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is really crucial because because all of these nations have gods. Mm -hmm. And if we look at Babel, what we see is that the original attempt was actually a kind of monotheism with a man, Nimrod, uh, a particular tyrant, 
at its head. So he was the God, um, or at least the priest of the God. Well, polytheism is usually described, as I've heard it, as this sort of natural thing that man does because he's ignorant or he has to have some kind of cool explanation for the weather, so he makes a bunch of gods. It's never struck me as plausible. No. <laughs> I at least, I don't know, you think about children. Like I've never seen a children come up with gods to describe the weather, even outside of like, not the point. The point is, that's a bad and stupid explanation. And w- what you see in the Bible is a really uh, an alternative one. Rather, man is, if you're going to say by nature orientated towards anything, I'd rather say by sin orientated towards trying to be like God. Right, every that, tyrant, in a sense, is positing himself as the God. The world comes from me. The language right. comes from I me. Am the source of order. Yes, exactly. And that's obviously Babel. Mm-hmm. But now you have everybody trying to be Babel, so you've got multiple gods. So polytheism is better understood as a remedial gift in the sense of it's a check upon unleashed idolatrous monotheism. Namely, yeah. that man will be like God. It actually, it, I, I see what you're saying. I think that's a, uh, an important point, a powerful idea, because what happens in the nations, in this diversity of the nations, is that you can't, you can't, you may think your God is the best and that you're devoted to him, but you're aware that the guy next door also has a God. Also has a God, yeah. And he, that God also seems to be powerful because mm-hmm. the guy next door, next door also has an army and also is capable of ordering things. And so, what, what it seems like what happens there is that the gods necessarily move into the cosmos, mm-hmm. right? Like they become, and this opens up the possibility for, for asking the question, who orders the cosmos itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it opens, it keeps open the, 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 the door for, for the Lord God. Which is precisely how the Lord God actually enters into history with Israel right. is as one of the gods. Right, I will be nation, your God. Right, another God. You will be my people, I will be your God. And at first, the whole excitement about Yahweh is just that he can destroy all the other guys. He's the most powerful guy around, yeah. <laughs> and it is a further development to then say he is the only God. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's marvelous. So you can see that tyranny is, it is idolatry in some manner because that, that desire to have, to rule for private gain terminates in the desire to be like God, to deliver a world that comes from you below mm-hmm. and to receive nothing. Okay, so Abraham goes out as a nation um, that is maintaining the command to be fruitful and multiply. And you see this immediately, that instead of doing the tyrannical thing, he does something very different. So for instance, when when, uh, Lot and Abraham come into conflict, um, which is precisely the opportunity that conflict. Oh, sorry, I should explain it. Uh, Law and Abraham come into conflict because um, they're they're herdsmen. The people working their lands are being they're multiplying. There's right. a lot of sheep. They are coming up on each other's borders. They're getting each other's business. So it's scarcity. Yeah, scarcity. They're experiencing. We don't scarcity. have enough resources. Right. Somebody get Malthus to <laughs> describe this first. Um, <laughs> well, what do they do? Well, they instead of using that opportunity for the production of fear and anxiety by which Abraham can say, okay, you uh, were having these conflicts. Well, you're going to have to do X in order for mm-hmm. me to do Y. And you start using the fear in order to gain. Right. Abraham does something that maybe was just new on the face of the earth. He says, 
all the world is before us. You pick which land you want, you want, and I'll pick my land. Lot is his younger cousin, I'm pretty sure. He has no natural authority. He's not the one that should be making the choice of land. It's a real act of humility on Abraham's it's a gift. Part. It's a gift. And in fact, Lot chooses the best land. It says in the Bible that it was like unto the land of Eden, mm -hmm. whereas Abraham becomes a wanderer. Um, well, right in that instance, you can kind of see that Abraham is carrying the social order of Eden. Yeah, and I mean, what it would entail. It, it, it is a directly non-tyrannical act of authority. Directly. So he yeah. takes the original language, he takes the original peace, he takes the original command to be fruitful and multiply, and, and that's a really good instance of him actually obeying it. Like right. people spread out, yep. they get diversified, um, and conflict is resolved through humility and, mm -hmm. and gift giving. Right. Well, I just think it's marvelous because that's a story of... of <laughs> Of not being a tyrant. And then, I mean, I don't want to describe the whole Bible for you in particular, but I'll describe just the next part. Okay. <laughs> because what then happens is really fascinating. You have all these nations that are now at war, and then you have this one thing called the, called well, really at this point, it's just the family of Abraham. That's called to be under the living God. That's called to continue the peace of Eden that's called to basically be monotheism within a remedial polytheism. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and it's always prevented from tyranny. This this particular family, um, and it really is a family. That's the other thing. Right. The other nations are organized according to the kind of violence done to them. Well, these people all speak this language. These people all speak this language. Their unity is war, right? Like, why are they this group and not that group? Right. right. It's not because of a common peace, first and foremost. The actual war, the enmity, the negation, the attempt to build up a god which runs into the border of this person's attempt to, to build a god actually defines the borders of this particular people. Right. Whereas with, with Abraham, what you're talking about is the family that God made continuing, right? Which is what you can see even, even the, 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 the fact of them continuing the original language from Eden um, I think shows this. Okay. Well, in this war, you see that the nations start to deal with people as, um, as Babel did, as a mass. So they're not really changing their ways. One of the stories where I think this is really clear is it's a, it's a battle between kings. And if you read the story, um, and it's actually happening in the plains of Shinar, the same place where Babel was built. So like biblically, like conceptually, it's all right, still okay. part of Babel in some way. But now it's instead of the one king Nimrod, it's like five or six kings that are making alliances and fighting against each other. And actually Nimrod is involved in the fight for what it's worth. Say the Jews. So say the Jews. Okay. Uh, and Augustine, but whatever. Point is, <laughs> um, so if you read the text, you get this weird image of like kings just fighting each other on their own because it literally says like there were four kings against five and then the king of Sodom did this against this king and then the kings ran away and fell in a pit. And, and you, there's literally no mention of an army. Of an army. Abraham enters into this battle to rescue his cousin Lot. And it names his army. It explicitly says what he did. And it says the very number. He like went and got 367. I forget the actual number. Right, right. It has high significance. So I'm really sorry <laughs> to all the Hebrew mystics here for ruining this moment. But he gets a particular number and he goes out of the way to say it. He musters them. He tells them the problem and they go. 
and they fight the, the kings, they win against the kings. And then Abraham has this famous line where the king of Sodom then tries to give him um, property. And he says, no, I won't touch. I will never have the king of Sodom be able to say, I have made Abraham rich. So he fundamentally separates himself from this form of kingship, from the mode of the, of the nations, um, and, and says, it won't, it won't touch me. So it's a beautiful story in its own right. But what, what's always fascinating to me is the fact that when you produce people as a mass, when you make them the bricks, it's not just like something you can do to have a, I don't know, like a homogenous population that you can easily advertise to, though it is that. But it also is the ability for smaller units of power to act in the name of everyone. I think about the Egyptian victory monuments. Uh, they would often show the pharaoh just like destroying the Hittites on his own. Like sure. Big one-man pharaoh with his club smashes all the Hittites. Yeah. They're fun to watch. I mean, they're fun to look at. Well, they're not that fun to look at. Briefly, they can be fun to look at. <laughs> Interesting. <anyway>. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there seems to be this connection between tyranny and the production of a mass of people as opposed to a particular people. And the moment that you have this idea that, well, it's not so much a king that's fighting. It's this guy and that, that guy, guy and, and these guys, and, and these they brothers. all had to be coordinated to yeah. do it, which you know that must be what's actually happening. That's the right. only way, that's the only way an army can really be. But the, the the problem, but once those people are dissolved into a mass, you can actually speak of them as um singular in some way. And it seems to me that the whole effort of polytheism as opposed to what the Abraham's family and ultimately the nation of Israel was doing um, is this distinction between the production of a mass of people that can be all subsumed under a tyrant who mm -hmm. can act as if he alone acts right. whenever the army acts um, to a kind of social order in which that's simply not possible. So maybe maybe it would be helpful if you if you could explain from the Bible, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we'll Please. see, if the, the, the form of military or the form of army that we see Israel actually having. Yeah. It because, they, because they definitely are a military yes. force to be reckoned with, but they're different. Absolutely. I and mean, we always have to remember, they're entering into the mode of polytheism, into the right. war of God against God, but they have to do it in such a way that they are a light to the nations. Yes. So they can never do it identically as another nation, right? Because then the victory of God overall isn't actually mm -hmm. a, a victory of anything but one Just another God. God yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So there's so many ways to approach this. The first thing is that Israel receives a law and that law modifies the way they can treat groups of people the way rulers can treat groups of people. We already talked about this a little bit with Moses. Um, but in a really explicit way, it bans census taking. Right. So you you quite literally can't... It's sort of a bizarre idiosyncratic thing in the Old Testament, but it's really not. Yeah. Is what you're saying. It's, no, it, it makes it, total sense. Right. I mean, one way you could describe the polytheistic warring nations is that they are a people whose rulers treat their populations as numbers, yep. as which literally means counted people, census. Like bricks. Yeah. Israelites are banned from doing that. They have a complex thing that you can do if you want to take a census where each man has to uh, make an offering for his life um, to the temple. 
I won't go too far into detail in this, but the insinuation is that to be counted as a number is a almost like a death. And you need to be, and not just a death, but a certain like giving yourself over to the king, the ruler, and that you need to be purchased back for God. And so God, a, a certain amount is given. Okay. Um, so that, but that, that sounds like a compromise of some sort. It's some compromise, but then you read like in Chronicles, David tries to take a census of people and God just like, I mean, it's play. He gets to choose between like plague or being. Well, sorry. and it's isn't it? It's a, it's directly, directly referred to as a temptation of the devil himself. Yeah, temptation of devil. I mean, the devil leads. Yeah, yeah. wants you to take a census. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, even if <laughs> even if there is a way out, you know, in some respects, like the the thrust is that you don't count people. And right. there's a there's a Hebrew tradition of that no blessing accrues wherever there is counting. And the reasoning it, it there is that you really can't count persons. Right. Which might seem, and there's a, there's a part of the Bible that really shows this, because Abraham's supposed to be different. He's fruitful and multiplying. The other nations are, are trying to have sovereign control over you know, a, a warring population. Uh, God takes Abraham and he says that, he, sa he says, uh, go out and try to count the stars. Right. right. And he says, if you can count them. So that's how your, your children will be. Now, as a child, I always got this verse wrong because what I thought it meant was that there will be as many Israelites. As many, like as there like are whatever stars. number you yeah, came yeah. up with, that's how it would be. So it was similar to the, typical, sand, the sands of the seashore. Yeah, if you could count them. Typical tyrannical thinking on my that part. That is totally tyrannical thinking, yeah. It's not the case. The, what, point, is the that point is that he can't count it's them. It's uncountable. He doesn't right. sit there being like, oh, I guess I'm going to get somewhere wow, over 600. there's practically <laughs> infinite number of people. No, the point is that it is as it is impossible to count it, stars. If you counted persons, it would just be one, 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 right. one, one. Right. You'd and, never get to two. And, <laughs> and when we and when we and when we try to when we try to make examples of that, having great numbers that are uncountable is a really good way of conceptualizing it. It's not the case that well, there are technically seventeen billion people. Right. No, the point is that the relation to the person is one of uncountability. It's one of the best ways we can know people as people is by like shuddering to think of them as simply a repeatable unit that can be represented by, by exactly. a number. Yeah. Um, which is why when the rabbis then talk about this verse and they say, what did he, what did he mean when he said that there will be like the stars? They, they turn to another verse in the Psalms where David says, of God that you call each star by its name. name right. I remember. And and this is used to explain a passage in Exodus where it's just listing the tribes of Israel by name. And it's saying, well, these are the stars of heaven. So for them, it's all fulfilled. The stars of heaven are known by name. God's the only one that can count the stars precisely because he knows He's the, the only name. one capable of knowing every person. Right. And so the Israelites are like the stars because they are named right. by God. And they're known by name. So when you get to Israel military, um, which again, let's, let's be clear here. I'm not just saying like, oh, militaries are a good example of where tyranny might work. I'm saying that if you look at uh, everything after Babel, you have the organization of nations as military units. Like the creation of a command structure is what tyranny needs. Right. It's not the case that you can be like, oh, maybe we can have a bureaucracy versus a military. No, bureaucracy is a kind of military organization of society. Okay. So when you look at the military structuring of um, Israel, it gets really weird. So they can't be counted, right? Um, and then they have this ritual whenever they go into battle where 
the tribes have to are understood as families. Right. They're called out as families, right? right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Reuben, Dan, Gad. Right. And then the families within the tribes. Yes. And so they're called by name and they're and they're and they're mustered. That is, when there's a conflict, the tribes are called. Mm-hmm. Now, this is itself something different because the point here is that there's not a pre-existing command structure. Right. right? The, the, the military is not the society. It's a response. Mm-hmm. But it's always a response to these families at, or it's a response of families as families. So they come together in order to meet a, a clear and present danger or whatever it is. Uh, and then... Once which which means together, it's voluntary, by the way. Yes, it is voluntary. Well, I mean, it must be because the the you would have to have a pre-existing military in order to compel conscripts. Okay. Right. Exactly. But this is the point. Like in a, in, <laughs> in a non-tyrannical society, the person is not treated in such a way that he is is fundamentally always available to the command. Right. The point is that if there is going to be command, if there is a is the if there's the necessity of of a higher um, sort of operating on the lower then it has to address itself to the lower. Yes, as an authority, which is then met by an obedience. obedience. That's free. And, and one of the big obvious signs of this is that there's often disobedience. Right. So like <laughs> Benjamin doesn't show up, you know, right. and then everyone gets mad and they fight um, as families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's pathetic and it's there's squabbling in it. But, but the point is that it is not tyranny and that's by law. So God has deliberately created a nation under a particular law that prevents it from being a kind of permanentized military structure. I mean, when you get to Samuel and he's describing what it's like to live under a tyrant as mm-hmm. opposed to what Israel's used to, he describes a military society. He says, right. uh, you know, uh, this is a, a prophecy put, of a know, tyrant. We want a, we want a king like the nations to go before us and fight our battles, which is, just harkens back to what you were just talking about, how they yeah. mistakenly think the kings are the armies. Right, and, and Samuel says, okay, you want a king like the other nations, this is what the king is like. He's going to organize you into a military. So you're going to have some of your sons running before the chariots, some are going to build the chariots, your daughters will serve as perfumers, bakers, and whatever for the king. Uh, you're all yeah. slaves, but right. the point is you're a war machine and you're um, oriented, but you're always under that. That was the difference, because otherwise it would have been weird for Samuel to say if, if they were just simply, if he was simply saying like, you will have to organize in a certain way, it's like, well, yeah, we do that. Right, but the point is that this will be life, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's really important because one of the ways you could describe tyranny is the permanentization of the conditions of war. Right, war really becomes, I mean, and this is just what it means to abandon peace in some way, mm-hmm. which we're saying is the alternative. So it's not <laughs> that. But you look at the, the the other strange thing with the Israeli military is that when they are mustered by families and people obey or disobey and come together, the Commanders are sorry. The commanders are set then and there. So what I mean is, again, is showing that there's not this existing command structure. It's like, well, it's not like the generals of Reuben show up or something. Mm -hmm. It's like commanders are put over the people for the sake of battle. But this only happens after everyone who is afraid is told to go home. So it says, "Are you scared?" I'm not being very literal here. It's in it's in uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, The priest comes out and is like, is anybody afraid? I'm afraid. Go home. <laughs> and they do. There's other things too. Has anyone just been married? Okay, you go home. Yeah, Has anyone right, right. Uh, just planted a field? You go home. Deliberately shrinking the mass. I mean, that's, this is like the most insanely stupid military uh, 
thing to do if you are trying to be a successful military, I would imagine. But it's eliminating anyone who's motivated by an ulterior motive, right? Like if you're afraid, why are you there? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're the so only reason you could fight with under this law is for love. Right. That's that's what it's that's what I'm getting at. Is it's 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 saying this is a force that is motivated by the good of the common good, not by fear. Right. Exactly. Right. It's not the case. I mean, people have discussed this and said things that are maybe a little more didactic and been like, "Yeah, well, you don't want the fearful people because if they run away, other people might also run away and things like that." That's true, but it's true within the like. Yeah, it is true that the Israelis are actually creating a crazy effective fighting force. Well, well that's 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 one aspect of this, right? Is that when we talk about a just society as opposed to a tyrannical one, at some point we're going to get to the point where we say a just society is actually more powerful. Way more powerful. But it, it, but can, it can win wars more easily and with less resources. Which is what you see in the Old Testament over and over again. That's what you see. Yeah, like when they are faithful, yes. they win. Yes. Even though they have overwhelming opposition. And, and, and when they win, they are often using the tyrannical structure that they're fighting against, against itself. Against itself. Because yeah. the assumption of a tyrannical society is, is the opposite of the Israelite. No one's fighting for love. Everyone's fighting for fear. Right. And who do they fear? Well, ultimately, there has to be some central figure because the command structure is already in they place. They fear the king and his proxies. Right. So just kill them. Yeah. And if you look at Israelite military tactics, tactics if yeah. you want to call it that, you see this again and again, just cut off the head of the snake. And then what happens? Well, the Israelites are often described in this position of the, the armies are just fleeing before them in some way. But it's usually the destruction of the thing that the tyrannical army is afraid of. Mm-hmm. But the point is with the Israelite army, if each person is motivated by love and all those who are motivated by fear are gone, and if they've all arrived as families to be a part of this thing larger than themselves. There is no head to cut off. There's no head to cut off. You could destroy a commander, but that commander has been set over the people an hour ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's tactical, obviously some tactical reasons to sure. kill commanders. But the point is they're not fighting because they're scared. Right. They're not living because they're scared. The will of each individual is itself the will to fight, right? It's not, it's not as if they're, they're all, it's not a bureaucracy. It's not as if they're all fighting, you know, to satisfy the will of their commander, but they have their own ends. That is the motivation for them fighting. And, and, so and as the way soon that, as that, as that, that centralized end is eliminated, the only rational thing to do is to flee. Right. And the way that the, the alternative is described for the Israelites in the Bible is that God is the head of the Israelite army. Right, exactly. God is their king. But God, and, and, and it's either the Bible makes this point, or maybe it's, I've been reading a lot of uh, commentaries, so I forget which. But somebody, somewhere. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what difference does it make? Yeah. Well, it's like when Paul is writing his letters, and it says, as it says it's somewhere. somewhere, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's confidence. That's, that's the Jewish tradition. Man. <laughs> um, that God is as present to the particular Israelite as to the whole, mm-hmm. because that's God. Right. You know, he, he loves each one. So when you fight for God, you're not talking about like a centralized commander that you all fear. And if somehow that goes away, you scatter. You're talking about one who guides you in your particularity. Right. Like the universal is present to the particular and to the group. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it works. Right. I mean, you think about the story of Judith, which I love. It's like it works so well. Like Judith is a distillation of of Israelite military tactic. It's not, as some people think, this kind of like weird other story, like like this one way that they want to battle this one time. 
no, no, no. It's the story of a woman, right? So like the epitome of not the soldier right. going in and cutting off the head of one tyrant and the victory being won as a result. But but that's the that's the, that's the way the Israelites work because that's the way, um, yeah. I mean that's that's the way of peace. That's the way peace deals with tyranny. So, okay, that was a long excursion on the on, on the Bible. But what I hope we've pointed out uh, is that is that the Bible is a story of an alternative social order to tyranny. Because I think that might sound weird because isn't tyranny supposed to be the thing that's like odd? But I don't think that's the case. I think if you look at the Bible, most of the world is under tyranny. What's odd is that there is one world that retains the original link to a peaceful beginning. Right. Uh, the creation as it was in the beginning. And is put under a law that prevents them, even in all their sin and idolatry and falling away, which is real and they do it all the time. It puts them under a law that prevents um, the actual construction of a tyrannical slave state. Yeah, and the irony in it is that that law comes from God as if he is their king. I mean, as if he's a king like the nations have. Yeah. Right? Like he gives them a law that comes externally to them. Right? right? They receive it. Right. But because it is from God himself, and therefore for them and in complete congruency or harmony with the truth of the world itself to obey that law is not to be a slave, but to be free, even though it is a law that comes from above. Right. And this is because, because this is necessary, of course, because of their condition, right? Yeah. They are a fallen people. And so right. you, you have to lead them into their own freedom. Right. Um, so there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful sort of, God uh, image here of God sort of reaching down to them, right? And, and, and serving them as if he is their king and like, hu like humbling himself to the point where he could even be mistaken for a God, little G God, mm -hmm. right? Which is such a, you know, such a blasphemy, but, but, but he, he makes that, yeah, he, he's willing to risk that. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, you, and, <laughs> and what I think we need to then discuss how this is most immediately relevant to our tyranny and to what we might say are the mechanisms of tyranny that are constant. Mm -hmm. And I think what you can see revealed in this discussion of, of, of the military structuring of society is that scale is a mechanism used by tyrants. And what I mean by scale is, is, is very literal, like, like, Treating people in a large group does something. And that something that it does, which I want to investigate, is efficacious unto the tyrant's pursuit of rule for private gain. Mm -hmm. Fair to say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's complicated because the tyrant wants, I mean, I mean his, his tyranny itself is based upon the idea he can get people to do his will, which is already a reduction of persons to a mass, but then the successful reduction of the mass is what makes his tyranny efficacious, right? So it's like yeah. he, he needs to reduce people to the mass, but that is also what he's like after, that's his end. <laughs> right. You see what I'm saying? So it's not merely a tactic, it's also a sort of description of tyranny, sure. as I guess what I'm saying. Well, you see this in that- I'm trying to say. 
you know, you can kind of see this logically. If if the whole point of tyranny is rule for private gain, I mean, private gain is open-ended, as we've discussed. Mm -hmm. It has this kind of quality that rockets off to infinity and ultimately ends up in you having to play God. Scale um, has a certain effect that makes this easier. Well, what I mean is pretty simple. If I want to rule three people, if I want to be a tyrant over three people, I'm not saying I can't. I can. I can be tyrannical to three people, but it's hard. Yeah, it's not easy because it, it, let's say we're all in the same room and I, you're, you're being a tyrant to me and these three other guys and I know their names. And right. I look over and go, hey, Jacob, what's up with this guy? You know, it's, and, hey, Alex. And then we say, let's, let's get rid of him. I mean, the point is we know each other. Could take me. The three, of us, the three of us who are subject to you know each other, can right. trust each other, right. um, see each other, make eye contact with each other, decide to overthrow you, and then have the power to do so. Exactly. So if that's not the case, if, it, if I don't know the other people who are subject to the tyranny, if I can't trust them, right. if I'm not sure what they're at, up to, if I'm not sure what they're doing, then... Uh, the only rational course of action on my part is to assume that they're just a component of the tyrant. I have to assume that they'll continue to serve him, mm -hmm. right? Which um, is the tactic the tyrant uses in order to get me to subject, be, subject myself because, of course, any individual man has the ability to kill any other individual man. And so the only way to get submission is to convince each person that the other people have submitted to the tyrant in such a way that, that that person can view them as extensions of him. Right. Or, or that's, the, that's the prudent thing to do. Right. You have to remove the person from the thought that maybe these people are actually in the pursuit of a common good, which the tyrant is threatening, which means right. we're together. <laughs> right, which means we're together. And doesn't right. Aquinas say essentially that one of the characteristics of tyranny is that there will be a lack of friendship? Yeah, he says, he says it's, it's essential that a tyrant destroy friendship. I mean, he, he, says, he actually says something like, in a perfect tyranny, there would be no friendship. Wow. Um, and then he, he talks, because friends, friends produce, he talks about it as producing valor, right? They produce virtue and valor, and men, men who have friendships are willing to fight and willing to risk things, and they have... But what he's talking about, of course, is that there's, there's a basis of security or a basis yeah. of power that comes from outside of the tyrant, and so you're willing to act... Right, um, and so he describes tyrants as being um, working always towards the destruction of friendships, right. and anything that builds friendships they understand to be a threat, right. and want to annihilate. And that's important because when we talk about, I mean, friendships are are the antithesis of the mass, yeah, right. So you know your friend, you mm -hmm. love your friend, you trust that your friend loves you. And, and just imagine a mass of people, but then your friends there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you as soon as you start identifying friends, then then it it's no longer a mass, and this gets us, I think. So the tyrant needs to maintain a a, a mass for two reasons, I suppose. I mean, or, or there's two aspects to the mass, right? Like that he needs the mass. He needs a bunch of people to do what he says to do his will, but then he also needs the effect of that to motivate any individual to do his will, mm -hmm. right? The effect of the, the, the sort of, um, you know, experience of being at odds with the mass, mm -hmm. which is intimidating, mm -hmm. right? And, and terrifying. Yeah, so what, what undoes this or the, or the sort of alternative, I guess, would be, would be to, okay, no, hold on. Before I go there, let's talk about scale for a second. Yeah. Because, because you brought up scale. So it doesn't, when we say scale, I think that we're, what we're getting at here is that the, the, the direction of, of tyranny is always towards increased scale, yeah. 
right? So the increased scale makes that map, that mechanism of the mass more effective. Right. Um, but it doesn't, but we don't mean that tyranny, and so tyranny always has a degree of, of that kind of compounding scale, but, t but t tyranny can exist at any scale. Yeah. The point would be that, that it requires some scale, <laughs> right? Which is maybe a weird abstract way to put it. But what I mean is you can be a tyrant over a hundred people, but the way to do it is to produce the effects of, of mass, right. of a mass society to the extent that you can over a hundred people, which isn't very well. Right, right, right. right? And then over a thousand people, over uh, you know a hundred thousand. But what you're, but what you're always doing, what the tyrant's always doing, is positing himself as the top of this, mm -hmm. right? So, I'm the tyrant over this hundred. It comes to me and nothing beyond, right? Or the, I'm the source of order over these people. That's what he has to try to convince them of, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. So it's not that because you do get this maybe a knee-jerk reaction to scale as such, especially among. I think our type of thinkers, right? Like, you know, the, the, like things just appear to be too big to really be humane or like <laughs> be workable sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah. like there seems to be this sort of repulsion that comes with scale. But the point is not that like big things are bad and small things are good. And that's not the point. The point is one of the things that, tr one of the ways you can attain, um, a, you, the, one of the ways you can treat a person like they are replaceable, right? Like they are atomized without friends and um, like they're incapable of rebellion for that very reason is to consider them as a unit within a much greater number. So there's a certain, and for them to consider that too is the, is the trick. Mm -hmm. And so to start to live <clears throat> like, the, like numbers within a counted population. Right. And the idea would be that there's some sort of a stopping point. So you, you discussed this as being tyrannies are organized in a military fashion. And that is a good example because armies can be really small or really big. But the point is one army is not another army. Like they, they, they can fight each other, right? They, this army is a unit. That army is a unit regardless of the size of it. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you look at the construction of tyrannies, what they need to do is, is destroy not only internal difference, right? So they want to homogenize internally, but then they're also divorcing the internal from anything external, right? So, so they, anything bigger, any bigger sources of order are being cut off as well, right? So it's a, both a homogenization internally and a cutoff of anything external. So what it's doing is picking a scale and then making that the order, right? Okay. So, um, and this is obvious in the construction of nation states in the, in the modern period and stuff like that, where they're just directly doing this, homogenizing internally, fighting or shedding any sort of connection externally. Wow. Right. And that, and so when you said it's not like good, big things are bad or good or little things are good, like that's not the critique here. The critique is that what's good is hierarchy, <laughs> like, like properly ordered hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not like Israel was bad because it was big. It was good because it was an order of families of the smaller things ordered into the bigger things properly, right? Right. In justice. And so the big thing comes into being as in, in a different form than a tyranny, right? So it's not like we think big tyrannies are bad, so therefore we just have a bunch of little ones. Yeah, right. Like when we talk about the form of tyranny, that can, that can operate at any level. So the form of justice is different. It's a different form. And this is, you know, what is that? And, and it, it is that idea of 
of hierarchies of participation and fulfillment, right? And this is maybe a complex idea because it's very foreign to us, I think, to think this way. But, but if you think about a family and you think about a family, the way in which when a new child is born into a family and we might, a tyrannical way of thinking would be something like, okay, the Jones family exists and we are this like static society. And then a new person is born and then that person has to be um, initiated into our society and made one of the Joneses, mm-hmm. right? So that I think that's a tyrannical form, mm-hmm. right? But the, the, the non-tyrannical form would be to understand that the raising of the new child into the family, the bringing of the new child into the family is not only an adaptation of the child, but it is of the family. The family is now becoming the society that now includes that child intrinsically, right? Not not, not a, 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 an act of submission on his part or an act of conformity on his part, but rather the society itself, which is the family, is meeting him, right. loving him, bringing him in and changing ourselves, right. right? In order to be a place, a home. That's what it means for something to be a home, right? It's when you say you feel at home someplace, mm-hmm. It's not a place that you've submitted to. It's right. a place that has been formed by your presence, right, right. right? It's a place where you are an essential component to it. Right. And so the family becomes, is a place where you can see, okay, this is a non-tyrannical form where my world itself, my social world itself is created at the same time as I am created as a person, right? Like I'm moving into my personhood as the world I'm moving into is being formed to accept me as a person, right? So there, so there you have a family, so a higher, the individual, the person, the next order in the hierarchy, this sort of family and the way the family is, 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 uh, is bringing him up and into the, the family. Well, then you can say that happens with families together, right? right? And so you get communities that behave in a similar way and the families are what constitute the community. And it's not that the, the families are conforming to a community or submitting to the, you know, so we have how many families does the community have? It has so many families that we can count them and they're all interchangeable. That doesn't make sense. In a healthy community, you would say this is a community of the Joneses and the Barneses and the Nelsons and the Imams and the Wrens and the right. And you would have to name the families like Israel, right? Right. <laughs> right? right yeah. And that, and when a new family comes in, or when those families change, the community itself is changing in order to love them and bring them in. And so again, the social world at a higher level is as much constituted by the families as being something that the families are kind of ordered by, right? right? And you just put, keep pushing that out. Yeah. And that there's no reason why that doesn't push all the way out to ultimately, ultimately include all of humanity. And, the, and so the, the, the individual person in his personhood finds himself at home in a world that, that has decreasing intimacy, right? Because you don't, you know fewer people. You know fewer people in your community than you do in your family. You know fewer people in your city than you do in your community and so on and so forth. But that, those higher levels where they're becoming more, more distant are being, are, are appropriately distant. I guess what I'm saying is my family gets to be fully itself in the community, which becomes fully itself in the city, right? And so that, that whole sort of fulfillment hierarchy was present when I was a baby, when my parents were raising me. They were, they were mediating that whole, right. that whole order to me as they brought me into the family. So in a sense, the whole massive order is present and that 
very first act of love, right? right. Um, but that kind of an order then is an order that is compatible with both diversity, really, really remarkable diversity with ultimate unity, right? And this is what you were talking about when you were talking about the original commission, right? To, to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread out on the earth, right? And so we, we can have, we would have immense diversity even in, even in a, a very fundamental and true commitment to the truth itself, because the truth itself is infinitely complex because it's God, right? And so you can have, you know, every, every instantiation of the truth or ways of living the truth, um, there, there's an there's a infinitely variable diversity of the way in which that can be, but part of becoming someone who lives in the truth, so we say someone who's virtuous or someone who's wise, is coming to understand that other people can live in a truthful and just way in a different form or a different way than you are, right? So you, so the point would be part of, part of the functioning of a, of a just society is the creation of people who don't just tolerate each other's differences, but relish them, right? right? Because we, we, every time we see different differences, what we're seeing are different modes of the imaging of God, right? right? Um, so as this sort of just society becomes more complex, and grows, what you're really seeing is it's imaging God more completely, right? More, more perfectly. Um, and this truth that it's imaging in, in, in so many different ways, the reflections of the truth and, and all this complexity, both hierarchical and in a sort of diverse sense, um, are all different ways of, of living the law of God, right? Or different ways of, of making the law of God real on earth. The law of God, of course, being the second person of the Trinity. So, so what we're really talking about is, is Christ, right? The body of Christ. Um, so the church. <laughs> but all of this is to say, all, like what we're getting at here is that, is that the just society is not, is not a matter of rearranging the tyrannical forms in a constitution that works better, right? We're actually talking about a different form of social order, right? right? Um, so... Bureaucracy is not a part of it. Propaganda is not a part of it. Mass is not a part of it. You know, these things, these things are not there except to the extent that the just society has to contend with unjust societies. And then they maybe sometimes have to, in a sort of uh, remedial or, or, or temporary way, ad hoc way, adopt some of the, the, the forms. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, Something like that. Yeah. So that so that's what tyranny's not. <laughs> right. That's what tyranny's not. <laughs> so it, it seems that that puts scale as a mechanism of tyranny into perspective because right. that is a grand scale. It's, it ultimately includes the entire cosmos. And, and what a, a massive scale, to, to use a term here, uh, the difference... That, uh, that simply a massive scale, a scale that is the scale of a mass, is that it's actually something in some ways a lot smaller. Right. Because what makes it too large is really just that the persons in it cannot or are not treated as persons. So it's when you have the treatment of people as numbers in a census, as data points on a screen, as... Um, uh, functions or, or offices within a military structure that are all 
um, knowable at a glance or can be, you know. Yeah, what, what's wrong with it is that it's an unjust usurpation of the proper hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, you, you can say something like, um, you know, children, children by rights are ought to be in a loving family and that's where they thrive. And it's like, well, what's larger than a family? What's a bigger thing? And it's like, okay, like a city government or something. Well, what if they raise the children? And it's like orphanages. No, I mean, it's like bureaucracy, standardized thing, people who right. are working to take care of the children. The children may survive, but there's no, there's no way we could say, oh, the, the, the orphanage, which is a level higher than the family in this sort of hierarchy, is, um, is, a, is a, just a totally reasonable substitute for the family. Right. Right. So I, I think that what the, tyrant, what, the, what the tyrant is doing is doing something like that, is saying, they're, we're going to order all of the goods or everything that human beings need to survive at a level that is a certain level in the hierarchy. It doesn't matter which one you pick. It's unjust right. because the whole point is that justice requires the whole thing. Right, 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 right. right? Yeah, and it seems like this is necessary to the tyrant um, because he's trying to be God. And mm -hmm. so he's trying to create a situation in which his law, his rule um, affects the whole, but since he's not God, he can't actually be present to each particular each, each, well, Yeah, but in um, a proper hierarchy, that's not the case. Right. Right. In a proper hierarchy, it's like, no, authority is present to each individual person, most originally as your father. Right. Right. And then, <laughs> and so, it, I mean, if you had a just society, I think you would find yourself encountering authority as people who you know their name, mm -hmm. even higher authorities would be mediated to people ultimately through networks of people knowing each other's names. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is, this is impossible for a tyranny because, um, you know, it's like we said, if, if it's being mediated, then, well, a, you're not God and you're also no longer in control. So you can, it, 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 it completely precludes control because a, a, an actual mediation requires that somebody is taking, taking some sort of a, the way I like to think of it is some sort of a relative universal from above, some sort of a command from above, and then instantiating it to the particular situation of that which is below them, mm -hmm. right? Just like how a father takes the moral law and then instructs his children in, in, a, in a particular form for them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not a violation of the moral law. That's in fact the only way the moral law can be taught, right? right? But it is taught in a diverse way. And so the higher, a proper hierarchy would always work that way. So the, 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 the people who are mediating higher authorities are exactly mediating them. They're not just, they're not just a conduit. Right. They're actually taking it and then recommitting re or retransmitting it, rearticulating it for those people who are below them. It's passing through them as a person, right? The mediator. Yeah. Um, what that means is that the mediators, the whole hierarchy of mediation is, is capable of judging each other. Right, because we all have to be aimed at the end of the common good. We all have to be in our maturity and in our wisdom capable of prudential mediation of uni relative universals to relative particulars. And what that means is that we can look sideways, look up, look around and judge based upon the truth. This person is behaving as a tyrant. This person's making a mistake. That's not the, what we're up to when someone tells right, you something right. who's wrong, right? right? And, and so, it so again, it's this order of obedience rather than submission. It's like I'm obedient to the authority because I love him and I trust him. Mm -hmm. And even when I am confused by his orders, even when I don't understand it, just like a child who may not understand his father, if he knows his father loves him, 
and he trusts his father, he'll follow along up to a point. But there is a point where even the child says, I don't trust you anymore. Right. I don't, I'm no longer, you know, right. Like you've, 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 you've abused your authority. And so that, that sort of a hierarchy then has built into it. It's not some sort of constitutional notion of checks and balances. That's not the point at all. The whole point is that at every level in the hierarchy, human beings are acting as persons with authority on other persons in obedience. And what that, what they're doing ultimately is mediating the truth of God and of the cosmos to those people. But everybody lives in the truth of, of the cosmos and of God, right? So, so our common sense or our experience of reality then is not something that we have to put in tension with the social order, but is a, a confirmation of the social order. Like anytime we experience a tension, there's something that doesn't fit, something that doesn't work, something that bothers us, that means something's gone wrong. And we, we are allowed to, um, within a just social order, we'd be allowed to evaluate the order based upon our understanding of what's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, so, so in a sense, you can say ultimate authority is at every level because God is at every level. Mm-hmm. Like right? the Israelite army. Like the Israelite army. Yeah, yeah I think right? I used to think that I thought of mass or like large scales. I thought of it as a kind of, not as a mechanism, but as like the problem that a tyrant tries to solve. So it's like, okay, well, we've got these 300 million people. Got to reach them all, so we're going to use propaganda because right. that's definitely way more effective than going door to door or something. Right, right, right. Or like, all right, we've got uh, you know all these citizens. Should we deal with them as men and women? Eh, that's going to be really tough to distinguish each time. So we're going to deal them all with. We're going to deal with them all as neutral citizens, <laughs> right? Um, but now what I'm beginning to see is that treating things at the scale of a census. Let's just call it that because that allows us to talk about it no matter whatever, what. Whatever size. Yeah. That qualitative treatment of persons mm-hmm. um, as individuals, as, as citizens, as numbers, as units, as something less than what they are. Not the stars of heaven, not the families of Israel for sure. Um, that treating them like that and to the degree which they submit to being treated like that is what enables those mechanisms to be effective. So it's the weakness of the tyrant that needs a mass. Mm-hmm. He is incapable of addressing himself to, to 100 people, much less 300 million people in their difference, right? right? So, so what, what treating them as a, a kind of theoretical legal unit or a conceptual population, um, what it allows you to do is to speak to them through means that are impersonal, mm-hmm. you know, big signs, ads, things that yeah, apply I mean, to I, everyone. I think another way maybe of getting at the same idea would be that mass society, for example, mass society is always a propaganda society. It right. can't not be. Right. It's always a bureaucratic society. It can't not be. It's not like we're saying it's great to have a big, huge, complex society, but man, it'd be great if we couldn't have bureaucracy. It's like, well, no. Like that bureaucracy, propaganda, cruelty, the things that we've sort of, these are essential components of a mass, a mass society. Right, because they isolate people from each other and they create, in the subjective experience, like, like of the person receiving it, um, the desire to submit, to be. Because they present power. 
right? Like they, they present power that is not trustworthy. <laughs> like you don't know what it's, like you don't know what it wants, um, but you're scared of it. And so you placate it. It's, it's the return to the gods. I mean, it's like, it's producing fickle power. So, so the mass, right? That's what we were talking about earlier. It produces something that you know can crush you, but you don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, it's, so, so you're scared of it and you do what it says. Right. So right? in some way what we're talking about, it, well, I always say what we're talking about when we're not talking about it. And that's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Some way the abstract nature of power is the point. Mm-hmm. It's like, if we keep it abstract, then no one knows who is actually involved in it. And so everyone is equally suspicious of the other. Yeah. I mean, you think about, you think about just insane scenarios, totalitarian scenarios like Stalin or something where Joseph Stalin is just one guy and rather erratic, but, and he's capable of, of creating a system where the secret police are capable of being turned against each other and purging them their own ranks. But everybody's so scared of the power itself. Everyone's so scared of everyone else, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, the, and you can't trust anyone mm-hmm. because friendship has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So how would you, in the, among the, even a rank, the ranks of the secret police, be able to talk to each other? Well, you wouldn't and say, what, why are we killing each other? It's like you wouldn't dare say that because if, as soon as you open your mouth, the other person, you know, it's like you don't know, you can't trust the person you're talking to because you don't know him. He doesn't know you. Yeah. You know, anonymity is built into the fear. Yeah. This is why right? I love, I don't know, it's sort of a comic moment. Um, I can't think of a particular example, but when someone is like either too poor or, or, or just like one of the unwashed or kind of out of it so that in any of these situations, he's the guy that like stands up and is like, what's going on here? This guy's an idiot. And it's right. like, everyone's like, oh. <laughs> the whole like emperor has no clothes moment. Yeah. I think that's what you, <laughs> you start to long for a little bit um, is yeah. just people that aren't scared. Because what happens then is everyone then is like, wait, like, am I scared? Yeah. And then you can actually have, I mean, and what I'm getting at is that the solution to tyranny, such as it is, has got to be in friendship, right? It has to be in the creation of centers of peace where you know other people and so you're less scared. Right. And I think that the, the problem is we, we have this, I don't know, this weird mentality that if we just like take over positions of power that will like run the bureaucracies differently and we'll deal with mass scale differently and more humanely. And like, like we don't have to actually have a different political form, right? We can simply aim at a different ends, aim at a different ends, but it's, I think that's just a real philosophical error. Right. Because it's not what form is. It's not the way form works. (laughs) But if you have (laughs) what practically seems to work, I'm just being very practical here is to create communities where people aren't afraid. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily occur to them to be afraid because they have friends. Or at least they're less afraid so that they are capable of action. Right. Like, I'm not saying that. It's just relative, right? The, 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 the more, the more of a, I mean, it's very obvious, right? It's like the more of a base that you have, the less you desire the, the rewards that some foreign power can give you or totally. fear their punishments. Totally. 
you're secure. You're more secure. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like you have a home, you belong here, you love it. They love you. You'll fight for it. Yeah. I think what saddens right? me is that that's supposed to be the church. Yeah. It is and I don't just mean like the church as in like the other Catholics, you know, I mean like the institutional. It church. is the church. It's supposed to be resistance to tyranny in its structure and its form in the fact of its existence and in its actual activities. Like, but I mean, don't you think, Mark, I know maybe this is getting kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm wishy-washy on this, but I always think that where you see that form, you, that is the church. Right. No, I don't think that's I don't, so, so like yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're like that. Yeah, that's the society of love. That is, yeah. that is Christ being made visible on earth. That is, um, now that like St. Augustine said, that doesn't line up with the, it doesn't always line up with the institutional church, which is, which is a tragedy. Yeah, and I think that's all I'm referring to is that yeah. <laughs> the, the institutional church um, has seemed cowardly of late in that it has all of the resources, the grace <laughs> that it needs to help people to become martyrs by not being afraid. Right. Because it, it quite literally unites them in the sacrament to a body of friends, which we call the communion of saints. Right the ends of which are the common good and in light of which makes all the various promises of the world, threats, punishment and reward um, unnecessary. Like we have a piece here. Well, I'm, and, not and, being, and, I'm not and, being and, theological. And it's rooted in, you know, so you have the sacraments, of course, grace flowing and then the, and then the teaching, the historical reality of passing through the cross into the resurrection, yeah. right? Where, where the threats of the world, the ultimate threat of the world, torture and murder isn't the end. Right. Exactly. Right. Like it's like, a, a, when you say fearlessness, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I it, to the extent that you really believe that to that extent, the crucifix becomes something that you may not want to, in, to experience, of course, right. but you'd be willing to experience because, because of the promise of the resurrection. Sure. I think we, so, we often talk about the conversion of the Roman empire, which was maybe a just distilled, Form of this in some ways and that you had tyranny you had a regime of fear and then within it you had christianity mm -hmm. sort of staking its flag and what you didn't see is a kind of purely spiritual offering of hope which was obviously there like not spiritual but in the sense of like hope in the resurrection was real but what that hope in the resurrection does is it allows people, because they're not scared of death, to not be scared of things beneath death. Right, because exactly. they're not scared of torture, well, then they're not scared of social ostracization. Because That's they're not right. scared of social ostracization, they're not as scared of like basic conflict. It creates a brave people. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is that there wasn't this split between like the institutional church and then the church as like those moments of the society of love no, the society Rather, of love it is the was church. the church, and so, right, so right. When they'll the, know you by your love. And when the actual church is like developing hospitals and building the first like ambulance services, like yeah, things yeah. that the pagan world is very novel to them, or like when they're not running away from plagues, but are taking care of both pagan and Christians during during the decline of the Roman Empire, or or just the fact of like they are actually building a society of support, like the fact that they have. Um, alms and the sharing of goods and food and communal meals and a a life of subsistence that they're beginning to develop 
under rulers, under bishops. Right. Like this, this is the description of the creation of a world in which people are always treated as persons. It's, the, it's, a, it's like that was the world I was trying to describe earlier when, right. I, when I gave that big yeah, discussion yeah, yeah. of the it, hi hierarchy. Yeah. It's the church and it resists The church tyranny, is hierarchical, yeah. And it resists tyranny because of what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so what saddens me, I guess, is just seeing, seeing the institutional church somehow imagine itself as just being a part of the tyranny uh, of the world and then, and yet still trying to produce like... So much of it is confusion, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, but yeah, I know. I mean, this has happened, this kind of thing. We're getting on thin ice. I don't know. I mean, I, but, but the, the corruption in the church historically is almost always not spectacular. It's almost always just worldliness. Yeah. Right, where it becomes sort of indistinguishable from, from the world, from the nations. Yeah. And, that, and that happens, and then there's a, normally some sort of reform movement that, that calls attention to the worldliness, and the people who are worldly, like, what, really? There's something wrong with what we're doing? Like, yeah. like no, I mean, you think about something like the aftermath of the Carolingian Empire, uh, you know, when, when the church is reduced to this sort of feudal, proprietary church system, which is sort of integrated into the sort of petty nobles and their wars and power struggles. And then, and so the priests are, you know, simony and merit, clerical marriage and all this stuff is going on as a part of this power structure. And then the reformers show up and go, you guys can't do that. And there's loads of people that are like, really? What? We've always been this way. What's wrong? This is the yeah, way yeah. the church is, right? Yeah. Like people don't. Sure. And then the reformers have to say, no, I have to convince them that, no, that, that you really can't operate this way. This is wrong. Yeah. And, and I think that, so if we look at that, you know, we... You, you look at the church and you might say, wow, it really just seems to be adopting the tyrannical forms, living within the tyrannical forms, sort of unaware that that's yeah. what it's doing. And I think that that's largely accurate. Like they're kind of unaware that that's what it's doing right. <laughs> and that that won't last forever. Right. I mean, look at Israel. They... <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the reform will come. The yeah. reform will come. And then we'll look back on it 500 years from now and go, wow. We were corrupt. Why did we think that was okay? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's got a good 500 year hope to it. So Everything it. moves in 500 years, 500 year cycles. <laughs> yeah. All right. You heard it here first. Uh, check, on, check in on it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there it is. The creation of um, a mass society is a mechanism of tyranny. It's what enables the tyrant to, uh, I mean, to, to function because he, he is always checked by actual hierarchies of authority and he's always checked by the appearance of persons as persons mm -hmm. so he has to reduce people to um, a mass and then to operate on that mass as if it was what is real right so subsequently the challenge becomes the degree to which people in fact pretend that what that that mass is what's real to the degree that they act like it right um they agree that they act like citizens with identical rights and like repeatable uh, instances of humans or something like right, right. which we do we do this a lot yeah the degree to which they do is the degree to which the tyranny is successful it's that's seamless. right and then the degree to which they experience it as violence is the degree to which the tyranny has not yet succeeded that's right you know so you have um that kind of just awesome knee-jerk response of like hey you're not treating me like a person you're treating me like a number right you're treating me and i don't think that uh, maybe something we have to get in later because we've been going on a bit here. Yeah, 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 I think it's probably well. Fun. 
So there you go. Treat people like persons. There you go. That's the solution. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll talk next time, maybe in more detail about, about some of these things, but we really appreciate you being here. Thanks. And we'll see you next time.